You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader of the News and Observer, hosting this week. And with me are Lauren Horsch and Colin Campbell of the North Carolina Insider and Will Doran, also of the News and Observer. Uh, this was Snowmageddon week in eastern North Carolina and the Triangle. Uh, some of our um, brave correspondents here have only just now um, managed to get out of their driveways. Uh, and, uh, and yet there was a lot going on uh, down at the legislature and elsewhere. Uh, we had uh, more fighting between Republicans and Democrats over judicial reform, uh, in a hearing that uh, happened just before the really bad weather hit. Uh, we have a, a hearing going on now in court uh, on the redistricting maps for the state legislature, and uh, we had more uh, developments in the uh, Gen X, uh, basically, response from the state. Um, the legislature had a hearing uh, on what to do about uh, the finding ch- the chemical Gen X in water. Um, but uh, the emergency response was really the first thing on everybody's uh, mind this week, and there, there is sort of a state government angle here. Um, the, uh, uh, Roy Cooper, of course, was leading the emergency response and doing the emergency briefings that we're all familiar with, mostly from his predecessors. Uh, Lauren, uh, you were paying attention to the... Uh, to the emergency response meetings. What did you think about uh, Cooper as uh, emergency responder in chief? Uh, what, did, what did you make of it? Did he wear, first of all, did he wear the uh, Pat McCrory emergency gear? That's what I really wanted. Yeah, know. the trademark did, green jacket. Yeah, so past. he has ditched the green jacket. There is no green jacket anywhere on Roy Cooper. Was that a um, Pat McCrory original or did his I predecessor? Because I, I look back a year so ago. Perdue had her own outfit. Which she had like a white, white blouse with yeah. the uh, logo monogrammed on it. Um, and then Mike Easley, I think, went for some sort of ne- more neutral colors. Yeah, so as we know, Governor Cooper <laughs> likes his suit. So I do know the first day he was wearing a suit during the briefing. Um, and then on second day, I didn't watch the briefing because I was unfortunately sick and didn't pay enough attention to all that. So, um, But from photos on Twitter, we do see the governor wearing what looks like to be a very uh, good utility jacket that says uh, Governor Cooper on it with, I do believe, the State Highway Patrol seal on it. Or it looks like a badge patch with khakis and a black shirt underneath that's just my fashion you know knowledge there yeah. and i don't think he wore it this storm but i think the past ones he's had like a a light blue version of the green shirt that mccrory wore yeah. sort of similar insignia but uh light blue yeah. instead of uh, army green but he's not wearing you know the traditional emergency management kind of triangle patch that i know uh mccrory was known for Mm. So I was looking back through the archives because this is very important. Uh, yeah. uh, what they, what these, chic what these governors, governors, governors wear. <laughs> I did. I, we had photos of Jim Hunt in uh, 
in sort of a, a, a vest, uh, you know, a caution vest. Uh, and uh, and then during that's during a snowstorm, and then during various hurricanes, of course, um, we had pictures of um, you know all the governors in their various wear. Yeah. But but Cooper did did stick with the suit for a while, and then and then yeah, he tends to like to, to keep the, the suit until things get real serious and the storm actually hits, and then he's ready to get out. I think the the picture Lauren was talking about, he was at like a DOT barn, yeah. like thanking the workers. Well, he's even there's even this photo where he's in emergency management briefing room with like several people in these like army green emergency management shirts with like the triangle patches and he's sitting there in a suit looking super uncomfortable and i just want to be like man you know (laughs) you're the governor you can change outfits but i mean it's what he likes so let him wear a suit Mm -hmm. i guess well i know a lot of you come to domecast for the fashion commentary (laughs) so we wanted to get that out of the way first yeah but also Um, did uh did he have a slogan like mccrory did Get your anything? stupid hat yeah. on. Yeah, don't put your stupid hat on with McCrory's. I don't think Cooper has one, which I think, you know, he's a year in. It's probably time that he develop one that can be turned into a convenient thing, gift to share on I Twitter think he during did, storms. I think he did tell people to wear multiple layers. Okay. That's not as catchy. Well, that's very yeah. dad advice. So, yeah. I mean, we'll have to keep yeah, an eye out Yeah, he's got that. like, that's what, three or four kids, fatherly. so he's very much the, you know, the dad governor. You know, make sure to bring your clubs. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we'll see. Uh, anyway, we hope everybody was uh, safe out there. Uh, we've got several uh, people here who've who've uh, been casualties in one way or another. Lauren was sick from probably from the winter weather, I imagine. Will uh, barely got out of his neighborhood this morning. It's been tough out there. I was just doing my job. Uh, our colleague uh, Henry Gargan wrote an article the other day, a column about uh, you know why no one should be upset that Southerners can't drive in the snow. And I, you know, I support my coworkers here and just doing my best to uh, prove Henry's point. Yeah. So, but I made it eventually. I say, Lauren, I think, believe you wanted to rebut that column as a northerner. I don't know. As someone who's from southern Canada, a.k.a. Minnesota, I got thoughts, but I won't share them because I don't want to be preachy. But I do have to say, maybe we just need more snow tires around here. I think that will solve a lot of things. But uh, And it wasn't too bad for those uh, people who are a little further west listening to this. It wasn't really uh, too bad in most parts of the triangle, but... Uh, but down east, they really uh, got hit pretty hard by the snow. So um, uh, we hope everybody stayed safe this week. Um, the legislature did keep going and uh, had, went uh, uh, along with their regular schedule despite the snow. And uh, uh, Will, did everybody who wanted to make it to um, the environmental meeting make it? Or did that keep the weather keep people away? Well, it kept me away. Um, I, I listened in remotely. Luckily, this was one of the uh, the rooms that has the audio streaming, so I, I was able to just listen to it uh, from the comfort of my house. Um, and but yeah, like you were saying, with the the snows out east, there's this uh, hearing on uh, river quality that was really focused on the Gen X pollution issue, and the people who care the most about that are. Wilmington residents and you know they were facing you know I don't know half a foot of snow or something like that and so there have been a lot of people calling on the legislature to cancel this meeting because um, they were looking at a draft bill that's under consideration and a lot of the environmental activists weren't really very happy with the bill uh, thought that it didn't do nearly enough uh, to address the pollution issue that's uh, you know kind of got a lot of southeastern North Carolinians pretty afraid for their uh, their safety uh, and but the meeting went on anyways and the the main reason for that is the legislature is going to be back on January 10th 
uh, and it sounds like maybe a day, maybe two days, but probably not any longer than that. It sounds like they want to just get in, get out, go back home, and uh, you know, the, the, they want to pass some sort of bill, so they needed to have this, uh, this hearing as soon as possible. So they went ahead and soldiered on. There were about a half dozen environmental activists who ended up making it to the meeting, and one intrepid lobbyist who braved the... Uh, the snowy roads to get there and uh, some of the legislators were missing but they did have a quorum so they went on and they ended up passing the draft bill and um, for anyone who hasn't read my story on that basically the bill gives DEQ a number of studies that they're supposed to start doing um, big one is looking at the permits that we've got here and the permitting process in North Carolina and trying to figure out if that's really as strict as it needs to be um, and so it is this interesting, you know, moment of kind of bipartisan agreement here. You, you know, you've got this committee that's led by Republicans saying, hey, you know, maybe our permitting isn't strict enough. Maybe we need to have stronger regulations. And so a lot of Democrats are enthusiastic about that point that, uh, you know, they seem to be on board. You even had uh, Jimmy Dixon, the Republican representative from Duplin County, uh, saying that, hey, you know, all the environmental activists uh, – 15 years ago in the early 2000s were right. We should have done more, and uh, he was, you know, casting some aspersions on uh, DEQ, which was formerly Deaner under Governor Mike Easley for basically not listening to the uh, environmental activists of the time, and, you know, he basically said, y'all were right, uh, we needed to do more, and so uh, this, this bill is kind of their attempt at doing more, um, but obviously not everyone's happy. <laughs> yeah, so did Democrats support the bill? Yeah, well, like I said, you know, Democrats like that the bill is going forward. They just think that there should be more in it. And the main thing that they want is money. They want money for DEQ. Um, Governor Roy Cooper in late 2017 had asked for around $2 million for DEQ. The legislature shot that proposal down. Uh, they ended up giving around half a million dollars. None of it's DEQ. All of it went to either uh, UNC Wilmington to start doing some studies on public health issues related to this uh, water pollution and then also to the local uh, water uh, utility to you know put in some new equipment do some more testing things like that um, but democratic legislators and you know their, their friends and some of the environmentalist groups say you know if you're asking DEQ to do all this stuff and not recognizing the fact that their budget has been cut by millions of dollars in the last decade they've lost you know dozens of jobs they don't have the equipment that they need to even kind of figure out what's in the water, how much is in the water, uh, that, that was something that the, the state health director, Betsy Tilson, said at the meeting that, you know, hey, there's this very specific piece of equipment that we need and, you know, DHHS doesn't have it, DEQ doesn't have it, and, you know, so that's, you know, when they ask for money, it's not just necessarily for hiring new people. Sometimes it's, you know, we need to do more tests, we need to, you know, have people working overtime, we need to buy equipment, things like that. Well, the quote of the day out of that committee um, was from the former Wilmington mayor, um, who basically said, don't drink the water down in Wilmington, which is kind of a stunning thing for a former city councilman or mayor of a city to to say. But um, tell us about that. Yeah, Harper Peterson, who was the mayor there uh, for a few years, I don't remember exactly when my timeline of Wilmington local politics is not quite up to snuff. Um, but he's the former mayor, and he's actually currently running for a state senate seat, uh, the local one held by uh, Senator uh, Michael Lee, uh, who's a Republican, Peterson's a Democrat. So there's a little bit of politics underlining all of this. Um, but yeah, Peterson got up at the meeting um, and, you know, 
again, kind of complained that the meeting was even being held because so many of you know his fellow, uh, what is it, Wilmingtonians, I suppose, uh, <laughs> weren't able to make the meeting. Um, and he said, you know... You know in, in our story about, uh, in our weather story about Moore County, we called um, people who live there Moore Countians. Moore so um, I don't know, you could, New Hanover Countians, maybe? Pinehursters. Uh, wine, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, Wilmingtonians, anyway. Um, anyways. Peterson got up and said, you know, I've had a lot of people asking me, is the water here safe to drink? And he kind of couched and said, you know, there's not hard evidence one way or another, but I err on the side of caution. And I've been telling people, no, don't drink the water. And, you know, that was kind of, whoa. You know, we've got the former mayor of, you know, Wilmington's probably, what, the fifth or sixth biggest city in the state, saying that people shouldn't be drinking the water down there. I talked to him later after the meeting. I called him up and uh, asked him to kind of elaborate on that. He said, uh, you know, that he thinks that uh, Chemours and DuPont, who are the companies that uh, everyone basically believes are behind this pollution, ought to be providing bottled water for everybody downstream of their plant, which is in, on the Cumberland and Bladen County line. They're currently providing bottled water for a few families, you know, who are, live very close to the plant, but he thinks that, you know, they should be giving water to everybody, you know, and all throughout Wilmington and, you know, everywhere between Fayetteville and Wilmington, essentially. Um, I, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, um, but <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. Um, should note that, uh, you know, not everybody in Wilmington agrees with Mr. Peterson on this. I talked to uh, Charlie Rivenbark, who's a city councilman there, um, been there for a long time. He actually grew up in Wilmington, lived there basically his whole life. And uh, he also, in addition to being on the city council, he's on the local water utility. And he said, you know, basically he strongly, strongly disagrees with that comment. He pointed out that the state's health target for how much Gen X is safe in the water is well above the levels that they've been finding in the water there recently. Um, you know, he also pointed out that you know, hey, we only just kind of found out about this a few months ago. We're doing our best to try and stop it. But even with only a few months on it, you know, we've been able to, you know, see that the water isn't, um, you know, what the, what the state says is an unhealthy target. Should note, however, that that's, you know, obviously it gets complicated. Uh, Tilson, the health director, also said that, you know, that safety target is probably going to change because these chemicals are unregulated and for the most part untested. No one really knows what effects they have on humans. Uh, we've we know that they have some bad effects on lab animals, and we know that different similar chemicals that they replaced had some really bad effects on humans, causing cancers and birth defects and things like that. Um, and that was something that uh, Harper Peterson uh, brought up when he was saying don't drink the water. He said um, that his family had actually had, uh, tragically, his wife had three miscarriages, and he said that he thinks that the water pollution there was to blame for that, um, this chemical has been linked to miscarriages and birth defects in the past. And, and that was, uh, was that some years ago? Uh, so that would have been the chemical uh, that yeah, Gen X replaced. Right, um, yeah. But all in the same kind of chemical family. Same here. kind yeah. of chemical, same company. Um, that It was a formerly a chemical called C8 that uh, in West Virginia has been linked to miscarriages and birth defects. And they settled actually a multi-hundreds of millions of dollar lawsuit over that earlier this year over all of the health problems that they caused there. Um, and uh, Gen X is the replacement for C8, you know, same company, very similar formula, um, although they say that it is safer. Okay. Well, you mentioned that uh, this could be something that they deal with, at least the study part of it, um, during next week's special session. 
so I'm wondering what you all expect out of the session uh, next week and what you think legislators will take up. Uh, Lauren, uh, what are you watching for? Um, I will mostly be watching for constitutional amendments because we've been told for months and weeks on end that this is what we're going to be tackling in January. But as we know, that's probably not going to be happening, um, but it's something I've been very interested in. And so I did a little story about, um, you know, how often we have constitutional amendments in North Carolina, how successful they are. And actually, since the 1970s, when the Constitution was revised in 1971, I mean, we've had about, we've had 46 um, constitutional amendments go up for a vote, and uh, 38 of those have been adopted. So we've got a pretty good percentage of those passed. And uh, I talked to a political professor, Chris Cooper, from Western Carolina University. And he said, you know, of course, um, you know, rejection is a lot rarer than passing um, a constitutional amendment. And so it's just, it was interesting to look at that because I feel like the, you know, most people believe, oh, constitutional amendments are so hard to pass when that's, that's not really what happens here in North Carolina. Um, and, you know, the thinking is, is Republicans, um, Republican leaders will put a constitutional amendment on a ballot only when they know it's going to pass and has good public backing. So um, we could see some of those. There has been talk about voter ID, which um, Cooper, the political professor, said could very well come up because um, he thinks that would be a good example for what North Carolina could see in 2018 on a ballot. Um, but we don't know if that's going to happen because, as we know, Gen X could come up, um, and it's going to be hopefully a short session, one to two days. Um, but I think I'll throw it to Colin because there he knows of something that could potentially happen. Yeah, so there's um, a, a discussion, I guess, on the whole judicial redistricting thing. Uh, there's a meeting on that this week. That seems like, of course, that was the original reason to come here in January, but it seems like that's not going to happen uh, next week. There's now a joint House and Senate committee working on some of the details uh, of those proposals. Uh, the hope uh, stated by leaders is that they can work on that for a few weeks and then maybe come back at the end of the month or next month or sometime later than that um, and uh, vote on those proposals, but those won't be ready next week. So that's one that uh, may not be coming up that uh, quickly as next week. Uh, there's also been talk, I think, of uh, the governor's appointments. He's got a few people that uh, he wanted to get on a couple state boards uh, back when the legislature was in town in October, and they didn't do that, so they hadn't had enough time to vet the people that Cooper wanted to put on boards. Um, so Phil Berger, I believe, in a recent interview had uh, said that, that that's something that's going to come up. Um, Tim Moore has said in interviews constitutional amendments, but he hasn't specified which ones of the ones we were just talking about. Um, so there's somewhat of a wild card uh, happening next week, I think, but uh, sounds like it may be uh, fewer fireworks and a little bit more straightforward than they thought, but uh, leaving the door open to future sessions between now and the official session in May. Whenever they get to judicial election changes, do you think they would just redraw the districts for judges, or does it seem like they're he headed toward just doing away with elections as they've uh, talked about or going to some kind of retention elections? So based on what has happened so far, I think the redraw option seems to have the most support um, and is probably the most likely scenario. Uh, and there's two versions of that now. There's the original maps drawn in the House and approved in the House uh, that Representative Justin Burr has put together. Uh, there were some constitutional concerns voiced by some experts about those maps. So the Senate has made some tweaks and has its own version of the maps out, but simply 
uh, essentially accomplishing some of the same things, not terribly different from the House plan. So they may work out the differences between those two and go that route. Uh, but then we have the Senate, which uh, earlier this week uh, got a little bit more into their discussion about uh, judicial appointment options. And they had this document that had a couple different color-coded plans with flowcharts explaining how each of them would work and which other states that their plans would be modeled off of. Um, and the talk seemed to zero in on what was referred to as the purple plan, which I don't know if that was sort of symbolic, trying to suggest that this was a, a bipartisan uh, approach to judicial appointment. But anyway, it's, the, it's called the purple plan. Um, basically, how it would work is that you would have the chief justice of the Supreme Court, which right now is uh, Republican Mark Martin, uh, would uh, create this uh, sort of commission of legal experts who would uh, be charged with basically evaluating applications for people who want to become judges. Uh, and then they would sort of sift through those, see who's qualified and who's not, and uh, send a, a fairly lengthy list of qualified candidates to the legislature. The legislature would then uh, whittle that down to uh, a handful of people who uh, would go then to the governor, and the governor would make the final appointment. And then that person uh, would serve for a few years, and then they would be up for a retention election where voters could decide you know, if they were doing a good job or not, but they wouldn't, voters wouldn't get a choice between that person and an opponent. It would just be an up or down vote on uh, that person's future as a judge. Does any other state do it like that, or is this totally novel? This, uh, there, there's slightly similar plans in a couple other states, um, and there are a number of states that don't elect their judges. Uh, notably, I think Virginia and South Carolina both basically just let the legislature pick the judges, which is, I think, still one of the options considered. Um, in a recent interview, Speaker Tim Moore uh, said he really has no qualms about a situation where the legislature picks the judges. That's something where Democrats are really concerned about that option because they feel like if a Republican legislature gets to pick all the judges without any sort of checks and balances, then you just get a system where uh, Republican politicos are the entire judiciary. Um, yeah, I was at a judicial committee meeting the other day where they considered that option, uh, just having complete, you know, the legislature would just have complete control over, you know, picking who gets to be a judge. And the, uh, the presenter they had at that meeting was a, a Republican uh, law professor from Elon Law, and he kind of cautioned that, like Colin said, Virginia and South Carolina have those options, but they've been criticized in the past for basically just being a good old boy system. And you don't get necessarily the best qualified candidates. You just get whoever's friends with the legislators. So, you know, obviously that's not saying that every judge in those states is, you know, unqualified or, you know, benefited from nepotism, but you get you get that more yeah, often. Yeah, and we're already even places. on the, uh, this, the purple plan that I just outlined, already getting opposition from Democrats on that, just arguing that... Well, even if you have the governor has a role and this other group, this uh, group of experts has a role, it still puts a lot of power in the hands of the legislatures. I mean, arguably they could submit a list of five names to the governor and all of them are Republicans uh, and everyone else is filtered out. So the uh, Governor Roy Cooper, in his, one of his uh, year-end interviews that he did a few weeks ago, uh, basically said that while he had supported a sort of similar system back in the 90s, um, he doesn't think it would work today in this political environment. He basically says it's too partisan and the motives of uh, the Republican legislators are suspect in terms of why they want to make the change. Yeah, Cooper seemed to be taking a pretty hard line in saying that he won't uh, support anything that comes out of the legislature until the Republicans don't have veto-proof majorities anymore um, on judicial Yeah, changes. I mean, he's been making the case that he, he likes the current election system. Um, Dan Blue, the uh, Senate minority leader, said in uh, the committee meeting this week that he's open to some ideas for 
judicial reform, but in a much more bipartisan uh, sort of lengthy process uh, to come up with that. There's been a lot of uh, sparring on this uh, Senate committee between the Democrats and the Republicans. The Republicans were essentially demanding that uh, Cooper come himself or send his legal counsel down to offer an alternative plan, uh, which they haven't done, uh, or have the Democrats on the committee offer some sort of alternative plan, either for redistricting or for judicial selection, uh, which they haven't done. Uh, the Democrats argue that, well, one, you probably wouldn't give serious consideration to ours. Two, we haven't really had the resources or the time to come up with a plan. Um, and again, we're we're suspicious of the motivations for doing anything at this point. Um, this is the committee where Cooper tried to send a retired judge to speak, uh, and the Republicans said no, and the Democrats walked out. Yeah, so. and then the Republicans, interestingly, over the holidays, is a story that some folks might have missed, uh, basically said they made a mistake, that they, they thought they realized they were wrong in um, basically refusing to let this guy speak. So they, I believe we're going to take his written remarks that he was going to have made and put that in the committee record for whatever that's worth. Um, and then in the wake of that, the, the Democrats had requested a list of seven speakers they wanted. Um, the Republicans came back with those conditions about uh, alternative plans uh, for allowing those speakers. Uh, the Democrats then didn't respond to that proposal in any sort of official manner. Uh, Republicans came back and said, okay, you can have two hours at the committee meeting, do whatever you want, no conditions. Uh, that was offered up at the committee meeting this week, um, and Democrats sort of used that opportunity to uh, speak about their concerns about the process. Um, they didn't end up having any of their, their preferred speakers come to talk um, before the committee, and one of which, interestingly, was uh, Phil Berger's chief of staff, Jim Blaine, was on the list of people the Democrats wanted to hear from uh, because he's been sort of active behind the scenes and uh, some of the proposals that are out there and meeting with judges. He was apparently at that meeting but uh, didn't end up uh, speaking, and the Democrats didn't really call on anyone. Uh, and, of course, I guess the other thing that's still hanging out there waiting uh, for possible action is any decisions that come out of the court on redistricting. There's a hearing going on today uh, where the districts designed by the, um, the special master for the State House and Senate um, are, um, are they're going through a hearing in front of um, federal judges. And so depending on what the judges order, I suppose the legislature may have to uh, do something on that. Probably not next week, I would think. Yeah, it depends when we get a ruling on that. Um, important to note that uh, the judges have seemed to indicate that by hiring the special master and having him make these alternative proposals that that seems to be when, where they're leaning, uh, but they haven't made a formal determination that the lines drawn by the legislature back in August are indeed unconstitutional or have these constitutional problems. Um, the lawyers for the legislature have been arguing uh, that if the judges do have a problem with those districts, rather than automatically uh, approving the special master's proposal, they need to go back to the legislature and let the legislature uh, make some changes to correct the concerns that the judges have about individual districts drawn in August. Uh, so we'll see if they succeed with that request before the uh, courts after the hearing that's happening uh, today, Friday. Okay. Well, anything else that uh, you guys think we'll be watching for next week? Um, we'll uh, be back with you next week to uh, to go back into it because it sounds like it's just going to be a, a one or two days at least at first. Um, well, let's take a break and come back with Headliner of the Week. Please stay with us. Hi, I found a toy dinosaur over on the playground by Smith Street. Uh, it had this phone number on it, and, well, I just wanted to make sure the dinosaur made it back to its little owner. When I found the little sippy cup, I just had to give you a call. It's for a kid, you know? 
I know my son gets super attached to the smallest things, even a fire truck, and I'd be happy to drop it off. We'd do anything for kids, yet one in six children in the U.S. struggle with hunger. Help end childhood hunger near you. Learn how at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. And welcome back to Domecast. Now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, Headliner of the Week. Colin Campbell, who's your headliner? I'm going, uh, looking ahead to the 2018 elections, we have our first big um, candidate announcement of 2018, and that's uh, Mac Paul, who uh, is a former uh, chairman of the Wake County Democratic Party. He was in that role uh, back when Democrats uh, took back control of the Wake County School Board. Uh, he's also pretty well known as a development and real estate attorney uh, who's often uh, representing development interest uh, in front of the Raleigh City Council. He is going to run for state senate, and he's going to be challenging uh, incumbent state senator John Alexander uh, in a district that's basically the northern uh, sliver of Wake County, a little bit of Raleigh, and all of Franklin County. So this is a district, a lot of it's actually currently uh, state senator Chad Barefoot's district. Uh, as part of the redistricting changes, uh, Barefoot and Alexander Alexander were put in the same district. Barefoot said pretty quickly after that that he would not seek another term. Uh, Barefoot uh, did confirm to me this week that he will be seeking uh, another term in office. So uh, Mac Paul is going to be running against him. And that basically means uh, that Democrats in their recruiting efforts have now have a candidate uh, for every House and Senate seat in Wake County, uh, both the ones held by Democrats, uh, some of whom are running for re-election, uh, and the ones uh, currently held by Republicans. So that's uh, pretty crucial in their efforts to uh, break the Republican supermajority since uh, Wake's districts tend to be more competitive than some other parts of the state. Were there some uh, incumbents who just went unchallenged in years past? Um, Not so much on the Republican side in Wake. There were some Democrats, I think, who have run unchallenged in, in Wake County. But uh, I think in general this year, uh, even this early in the cycle, we're, we're not to the filing period yet. Uh, Democrats are on track to have more candidates in more races than they have in the past because they have put such a uh, huge premium on just trying to get someone in, in nearly every district if they can. Um, so that's a uh, so Mac Paul's my pick. Uh, interesting side note while I'm on this topic, um, he's not the only Democrat interested in this seat. Uh, there's a woman who uh, is would be recognizable to anybody who closely followed the HB2 uh, hearings of the legislature, Angela Bridgman, who's a uh, transgender activist from the Wendell area. Uh, initially, she wanted to run against Chris Malone in House District 35 realized that her house was no longer in that district through redistricting, and she was in with uh, Darren Jackson, the House Democratic leader, who she was not interested in primarying. So then she turned her attention to the Senate district, uh, thinking she would be able to run against uh, John Alexander. Turns out she's not in that district either. So she said she's uh, she believes that uh, there was some sort of deliberate action taken and how the lines were drawn, uh, and she's planning some sort of legal challenge. So we'll, we'll see if that comes to pass and uh, whether there's any... Uh, ability for her to somehow get grandfathered into the district she wants to run in. I think that's probably a long shot. But uh, uh, one other interesting wrinkle in redistricting in this uh, particular Senate race to watch as we go forward. Okay. Mac Paul is in the hat for headliner of the week. Will Doran, who's your headliner? Well, I'm going with a different upcoming Senate Senate candidate for 2018, uh, which is Harper Peterson, who I already talked about. Um, I already talked about him once, but I mean, We've got the former mayor of Wilmington saying, don't drink the water in Wilmington. That's a pretty big deal to me, um, and I think it's got a lot of people uh, riled up <laughs> over there. I was you know, trying to call up City Hall all day yesterday, which was difficult to do because city offices were closed, so I had to hunt all these people down, and you know, uh, you know, once I eventually found them, they were very much up in arms about these comments, clearly not uh, wanting to deal with all of the worried citizens who would presumably be contacting them. 
in the future. <laughs> so uh, for, for stirring things up and, uh, you know, uh, really making a pretty shocking statement, I think, and maybe one that'll turn out to be fear-mongering or prescient. We, have, we don't really know yet which, which way, but uh, Harper-Peterson. Okay, Harper-Peterson in the hat for headliner of the week, along with Mac Paul. All right, Lauren Horsch, who's your headliner? So I'm throwing it back to a couple weeks ago when we talked to uh, talked about a man named Daniel McComas, a former House member, a Republican from Wilmington. This is a very Wilmington-centric podcast this week. Um, but the reason I'm bringing uh, Daniel McComas back up as my headliner was because he was appointed by Governor Cooper to be on the State Board of Transportation, but he resigned on December 22nd. Um, after he uh, was accused of dragging a lobbyist by her ponytail when he was a House member. Um, and this was all, uh, and that accusation came up through reporting from uh, WNC Radio's uh, Jeff Tabiri. And we had just sent out, you know, a query to um, Governor Cooper's staff, you know, asking, you know, did you read the story? Uh, you know, are you going to ask McComas to resign? Are you going to force him to resign, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we hadn't heard back in a couple of days. And finally, on Friday, we heard he is indeed resigning. And it looked to be a pretty rushed resigning when he misspelled the word governor in his resignation letter. Um, So they may have thrown that one together quickly. Yes. Yeah. So um, I just thought that was a very interesting one. Um, And one I was actually not expecting to see. I didn't I personally did not expect him to resign just because he had denied the allegations. Um, but this could be kind of Cooper setting a tone of, you know, we're not going to accept this in my administration from anyone elected or appointed. So um, throwing McComas back in the headlines there. For and I guess the governor didn't come out terribly specifically yeah. about this. We we asked him, I guess, if um, the governor had requested this resignation. And what was the answer? Something like uh, he thinks it was the right thing, thing to, do. to do. Yeah. So we're not we're still not quite sure on whether, you know, Cooper spoke with him directly and said, you know, you need to do this or if he did it on his own volition the timing is suspect just because you know we had been emailing them back and forth for two or three days uh, but I mean it's still interesting and you know of note just because of you know the, the current climate we're in where sexual harassment and assault is constantly in the headlines and we're trying to I'm not going to say you know clean house or clear shop of you know, harassers, but I mean, it's important to note that it still happens and there are ways to deal with anyone who commits assault or is accused of assault. So, Okay. Daniel McComas in the hat for headliner of the week, along with Mac Paul and our winner for this week, uh, Harper Peterson. So I guess actually our winner this week is Will. Uh, uh, the uh, um, saga of Gen X continues, but that's a pretty interesting turn when you've got uh, uh, officials going that strongly on it. Um, and we'll keep following that. Uh, I'm surprised nobody picked Winter Storm Grayson, but... Uh, I was uh, thinking about going uh, back to the beginning of the podcast and talking about Rory Cooper's shirt, but I mm-hmm. um, yeah, felt we, like that would be a little bit too inanimate. His shirt, his shirt is just so plain. It's just a black <laughs> button-up, Colin. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's probably not deserving of a Headline of the Week slot, so I, I'm, I'm still glad that I went that with Mac Paul. It's that shirt you hang in the back of your closet and just grab on a Friday to go to work. Like, it's nothing special. <laughs> All right, uh, that's it for Domecast. Uh, For Will Doran, Colin Campbell, and Lauren Horsch, I'm Jordan Schrader. Have a good week. Stay warm, stay safe, and we'll catch you next time on Domecast. 
You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.